Greetings, ladies and mendigants, and welcome to this latest episode of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY. The links to all the stories will be down below, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider subscribing. Story number one. Interview with the Maintenance Chief, written by MacDJ Ord. So, uh, it started with the Primum Convivia ship. That's our name for them, of course. They don't have a name as we understand it for ourselves, let alone one that we can pronounce. Suffered some major malfunction and dropped out of FTL about five light years from Seoul. They picked up our radio transmissions and decided to come here to work on their repairs. Not because they thought that we could help, but because if they failed to fix things, whatever species eventually discovered us would also find them, or at least their ship. So they calculated Earth's present orbital position and warped there, then flew to the nearest stable Earth lunar Lagrange point and parked for repairs. And it was only blind luck that that was L5, population a hundred odd scientific and commercial satellites and one small industrial station to service them, rather than L4, population, several dozen large civilian habitats and a couple armed military platforms. We didn't learn any of that until later, of course. So, these aliens just popped out of nowhere, and the scientists are beaming prime numbers at them, and the politicians are beaming messages of peace, and the military are beaming polite but firm threats, and the aliens are apparently ignoring everything we say or do. And I'm sitting on my station, looking at this beat-up ship sitting five odd clicks away from my station, and I'm thinking that I don't know the first thing about alien architecture. And I don't. I never managed to identify a single part of that ship except for it seeing it used. But there is one law I'm pretty sure is universal. The air is supposed to stay inside the hull, and the thing's got rents and all over of venting, and I figure that helping with repairs can't be a bad way of introducing ourselves. So I grab a few hull plates and fly over there, and the first contact... Uh, experts, who, I note, have done this before exactly as many times as I have, are howling, but the aliens don't vaporize me, so I start slapping what are, ultimately, just fancy glue-covered pieces of plastic sheeting over anything that was leaking gas and looked like it shouldn't be. A couple of them, the aliens sent out repair drones, or maybe they were aliens in suits. We never did figure out that for certain, and ripped them off but the rest they left in place. So, the experts decided that we probably were helping, and the next shift of my whole crew crew was out there with me. The ones they ripped off, we decided, were places where the loss of gases was either a waste in the first place, or something that was supposed to be contained, and the aliens would rather lose it out than have it build up inside the hull. Fuel vapor, maybe. In any case, we avoided touching any more places leaking those gas mixtures, and we didn't get any more patches ripped off. The next idea came from the contact experts. We had samples of the gases that they'd been losing, flying into unknown fume cloud without checking that it was not made of something that'll melt your suit is the sort of mistake an engineer only makes on his last mission. And they figured that the aliens might be short on them. So we loaded up pressure cylinders with those gases and left them next to the ship to see if they were interested. At first, nothing happened. Then somebody had the bright idea to send out another set of bottles. Only this time we first gave the valve stems a good whack so they'd leak enough for the aliens to tell what was in each one. 
They were interested in about half of the gases we offered, and anything they took we replaced. Most of it they only took a bottle or two, but a couple of the gases they kept taking and we eventually started using larger bottles. Neon, in particular, they couldn't get enough of. We were sending them bottles as fast as we could get the stuff delivered right up to the end. But the original, well-sealed bottles, we left them there, just to see what would happen, and they never touched them. Now, while this was happening, something interesting was happening. More of the damaged pits started venting gases, places that hadn't been venting earlier. We went out to the hull patches again, and our first sign something odd was happening was when we hit the second vent and my dosimeter started clicking at me. We backed off and took a new gas samples and found that the new vents were releasing entirely different stuff from the old ones. That was odd but we didn't have any idea of what might be in, so we went ahead and patched them up. But then, the new vent started up, releasing the same new gases. More patches, same thing. New vents replaced them. It was one of my guys, able cosmonaut Anakin Nadia, who figured it out. The vents were deliberate, and the new gases were things they wanted. That was our first real clue at just how alien they were. A human, any human, would have tried something else first, Maybe filled our leaky pressure vessel with the gases that they wanted and sent them back to us, or even vented the gases deliberately from ports that they airlocked and hoped that we'd get the message. But the Brumman, it was purely a basic cause-effect understanding. Their ship had leaked certain gases, and we brought those gases to them. So, if they leaked different gases, we'd bring those as well. Admittedly, it worked. There was a couple things on their uh, shopping list that we couldn't get but all the rest was arriving for their airlock in slightly leaky cylinders within 12 hours. The last thing we did for them came a bit later. They'd been replacing damaged components on their ship the whole time with those drones or maybe suits, and some of it were the way they were ditching old bits into space. The first contact specialists, after due and careful consideration, decided that these were probably garbage, which we could therefore collect for analysis without pissing them off. I was the one who picked up the samples, and nobody ever bothered to remove me from the reply chain when the scientists did their preliminary analysis on them. There was one in particular. They couldn't make heads or tails of what it was made out of, but the mechanical properties weren't anything beyond what we could do, and it didn't seem to have any active function. I took a guess that it was purely a structural member, and I'd noticed that there were plenty of them on the ship with visible damage, but only the most heavily damaged were being replaced, which probably meant that the aliens were short on spares. So, I did a laser scan of one of the intact ones and had a copy fabbed out in alloy with the same properties and included it with our next gas cylinder delivery. Sure enough, they took the copy and installed it in place of a damaged one, So, we had a ground-side foundry stamped out priority production run of the things, and they ended up replacing all of the damaged ones and even some that looked fine as far as we could tell. I ended up sending one of the intact-looking ones back to the foundry for quality control and not bothering to ask for it back. They earned it. They'd started the production's run as soon as I sent the specs instead of waiting for the contract to work its way through the contact team's government-issued bureaucracy, which cut off half a week of the delivery time. KUS ended up naming their first asteroid mine after me. Of course, we tried the same thing with a bunch of other components that they dumped, but while they took in some of the prototype replicas, they never installed them. 
I guess we'd missed something vital to make them functional. And then that was it. A couple days after we delivered the last replicated part, the ship just vanished. No warning, no light show, just gone. The unused gas cylinders were in pale prototype replica parts were sitting not 50 meters away from where we weren't even disturbed. Of course, you know the rest of the story. A year and a half later, the His ship pops in out of FTL, but they stay a cautious and polite light second out, and when we beam prime numbers at them, they send Pi and E back, and the scientists and politicians all get the first contact that they'd been hoping for. Eventually, we got our translation and our abstract language all sorted out, and they explained how the Primum ship came to be here and what had happened after I left. See, it turns out the new species are valuable, not for their resources, because there is no shortage of uninhabited space out there to get those from, and anyone primitive enough that conquering them is cheaper than mining is too primitive to have anything worth looting. Not for technology either. Even if they had something you, you don't, that's a trade that you can only make once, not the basis for a stable relationship. Rather, intelligent species are valuable for their uniqueness. Each sapient race has its own strengths and weaknesses, its specialties, its unique point of view. Now, at its extreme, you get species with fundamentally different, incompatible ways of thinking. No useful relationship is possible. Like us and the Premian Convivia, not only do they lack the basic concepts by which we define reality, they just don't think in concepts that we define the term and what they use instead is utterly incoherent to us. No human will ever understand a Primen or vice versa, but as long as you're close enough together to communicate meaningfully, any problem you have, the more different species you have working on it, the better a solution you'll get. You know that the His never invented popsicles. They got the idea from us. Even if theirs are made out of frozen chloroform dissolved in taurine, now they're popular snack food for them. Thing is, uh, first contact is hard. There is always mistakes, communication errors, and cultural missteps. And when that happens, it's not the guy in the starship who pays the price. The level of understanding which is required to establish a mutually beneficial relationship with a new species is a lot higher than that required for the unilaterally beneficial relationship. But for all that they were fundamentally alien, the Primen apparently understood gratitude or something like it because rather than simply sell our location to the highest bidder, they found the most human-like of their allies, who contacted the most human-like of their allies, who in turn found the his. Whatever the his were willing to pay for the new trading partner ended up going to the two intermediaries instead of the Primen, but we ended up with an ally whose dominant language isn't really more different from English than Mandarin is from Inuit, than one that understands the value of keeping your word yet also understands that not everyone will. One, in short, that we can work with, and that is why humanity is bright new race on the galactic scene instead of a valuable new tool in somebody else's collection of client races. Interview of a retired maintenance chief John Trudeau from the Appendix A of First Contact, a retrospective. End of story number one. Story number two. Manners Written by Morbanth. When we first met the humans, we went to war with them, as was proper. All must be part of the Empire, for only the Kritsky could lead the galaxy into salvation. When two tribes had met the Krist, they had always gone to war. 
for the strong must lead the weak and care for and nurture them, so the weak would become strong as well. It is our way on our home, and it was our way in the universe at large. The first few engagements had been one-sided victories for us, but not without cost. The humans were tough fighters, possessing a mental resilience unexpected for beings with such a weak and small bodies as theirs. We took over some of their worlds, newer fringe colonies at the edge of their sphere of influence, and started administrating them according to our ways. The human civilians had been ready to take their own lives for some reason when the troops landed, and had not expected our gentleness after victory, but there had been little time to learn from one another then. It would be a few more months before we knew why they were so surprised by our behavior. The first great battle of the war had been fought over the world of the New Zealand, an older, established world that was a great industrial center. All of our fleets were coalesced into one grand crusade, and we encountered stiff resistance both in space and on the ground. After the destruction of the main fleet, individual human ships with no hope of victory would sell their lives dearly and refuse all demands of surrender. They did what damage they could, whittling away at our martyr or striking at our supply lines. We had to stretch our forces over a vast area to corner and destroy them all, slowing their advance by weeks. It mattered little in the end, for the colony was far from pacified, and we would not move on without securing our rear. Human soldiers on the surface did much the same. They hid in the hills and forests and mountains and moved in small groups, ambushing the occasional patrol here and there, destroying depots and shooting down shuttles with shoulder-mounted missiles. Whenever they were met with combat, our forces would be victorious, but pitched battles only happened when we managed to corner a unit after days of hide-and-seek. The casualties they inflicted on our soldiers was enormously disproportionate to the ones they took themselves, but in the end, they ran out of supplies and were systematically destroyed. Some surrendered at the end, but they refused to answer any of our questions, so we sent them to prison camps to wait out the war. Even as they were clothed and fed and treated by our doctors, they would stare at each other, smile and shake their heads in disbelief. But when we asked why, they would only tell us their name, rank and serial number. After six weeks, New Zealand was officially declared pacified and the crusade would finally move on. The world has heavily depended on food imports and we used our civilian fleet to keep it supplied as the military prepared for the next objective. We left a few ships to guard the world, and they would occasionally report human scouts jumping into the system, scanning the civilian freighters, and then jumping back out. The next battle took place at the edges of the system, our foes called Epsilon Indy. The crusade had jumped in only to regroup before heading for the next inhabited system, but the humans had somehow known where we would be, and had been waiting for us. The size of their fleet was far larger than we could have anticipated, and we took an irreplaceable losses during the battle, but the Holy Empire was victorious as always in the end. This time, crippling human ships did not detonate their reactors as before, but allowed our hospital ships to rescue their crews. The prisoners were moved to camps of New Zealand and ships where we heading back home for repairs, too damaged to move on with what remained of the crusade. The rest continued towards Chiron, humanity's oldest colony and the one that we believed to hold the most of their shipyards. We were correct. For the first time in the war, we were outnumbered. 
The human fleet that awaited us was nearly three times as large as we had just left, and we knew then that we had miscalculated, but we were the crusty, and we were prepared to do battle anyways. It was perhaps the greatest battle of our history. Great deeds were done, acts of heroism unheard of since the old sages, our warriors putting honor upon honor on our clan names. We lost in the end, but it was a close thing. Three quarters of the human fleet and almost all of ours were in ruins when finally our admiral accepted the humans' calls for surrender. Our hospital ships and those of the humans moved in afterwards to do their work, assisted by a few warships left on both sides. As they worked, another, even larger human fleet jumped in and moved to lend their aid. I had the privilege of serving as a flag captain to the admiral and was present when the humans boarded our ship. Their powered armor soldiers escorted a small, unassuming human in a military uniform to our bridge. The man, graying and moving with a cane, stopped in front of the admiral and saluted in a way of his people. The admiral returned it and bowed. Tell me, the human being began, can we have peace? You have won. You have destroyed our fleet and defeated our forces. We'll bow to your strength and swear our fealty. I do not require your submission, sir, the human said. I ask for peace, not servitude. The admiral looked confused but nodded. I accept, but why? The human shook his head and smiled. So very innocent. I almost didn't believe it when they told me about you, he said. We had lost hope so long ago. Lost hope? Of victory? The admiral asked. Oh, victory was never in question, sir, the human replied. We had lost all hope of finding others like us. May I shake your hand, he asked. And they did. The war had lasted a few months, and our friendship, which began that day, still endures. We learned later how lucky we had been, for we were not the first strangers that the humans had met amongst the stars, nor the first to go to war with them without uttering a word. The first had come for their homeworld, insectile species with no true individual sentience. The second had been fungoid, parasitical creatures who relied on the sentient creatures as hosts. The third had been beings of energy, traveling the universe in great ships with hard light and harvesting worlds for resources. None of them had understood the concept of civilians, or honor, or compassion. None of them treated the humans as anything except a resource or an obstacle. All of them, like us, had underestimated their foes. Unlike us, though, none of them remain in the universe. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of the video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you wish to support the author, check the links down below for the original link. But if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways listed down below, but the easiest would be to share this with as many people as possible to help the channel grow. And I will see you all in the next video, and until then, I hope you all have a good one. Cheers.